It's Rexy's musical podcast. Hey, here's something for you to chew on. Every cultural movement in history has its own unique history unto itself. Each event has its own lineage. Each development comes with a trackable timetable. Each movement comes from something else moving it. Rarely do these things just happen. They develop. Rock music didn't just show up out of nowhere in the 1950s. Rock music was an amalgamation of blues, country, gospel, jazz, and all those elements came from their own rich traditions as well. Same with art, fashion, literature, you name it. You should also consider that each of these things are a product of their time, as if the climate dictates how and when things happen. Everything influences everything, whether it's about the continuation of new ideas or the rejection of old ideas. Culture and art are constantly evolving and constantly fragmenting, and that's important because out of that comes an ever-evolving state of flux which sets the table for some of the most important advances and changes in our history. For example, you could say that goth rock began in 1979 when the band Bauhaus recorded their debut single, Bela Lugosi's Dead, in a single take just weeks after forming. But that wouldn't be entirely accurate because that ignores everything that happened before it to make it possible. Punk, post-punk, glam, pub rock, all these things were decent places to start charting the development. But even that doesn't do it justice. Because you also have to look at the art, the culture, the politics, and the history that set the groundwork that led up to that. Where did goth begin? Well, you could make the argument that it began as far back as the fall of the Roman Empire. You could also track where goth got its musical traction from and from whom. And then you also have the long and richly interesting path that goth would take ever since and how it splintered off into a series of other musical pathways. And all of that gobbledygook brings me to my guest today, John Robb. Now, John Robb is a musician, as an active member of the band The Membranes, which he formed in 1977, but he's also an historian, an author who has written a number of great books and written for countless fanzines and music publications, including Sounds and The Melody Maker. He's also written for The Guardian, The Independent, and The Observer. It was John Robb who became the first British journalist to interview Nirvana. He's the man that coined the term Britpop in the 1990s. In other words, John Robb has been in the middle of just about everything. John Robb is about to release a great new book called The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. This is my interview with the great John Robb on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How are you? I'm okay. Where, where do I find you then? Which where, where, where are you on the planet? Uh, I am in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. Oh, Springfield. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know Hartford. I played a gig in Hartford in 1987. Oh, did you? Yeah, well, I don't remember much about it. I mean, I'd be, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be not that close, but um, I think it's it's on the way to Boston. I remember that. It's a gig you played in New York, and this place in Boston. Um, it's probably not that far from you, but I can't remember. The name's gone off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up on a map. <laughs> hey, uh, I read just about all but the last 25 pages of the book. So unless there's a major surprise uh, in the last 25 pages, <laughs> I, I en- enjoyed the hell out of it. It's got to be kind of weird you know, as a guy who you know, spent the last 40, 45 years interviewing people to now be on the receiving end of a barrage of questions. Well, no, I've kind of done both for years because I'm in a band as well, so... 
Yeah, so I've done interviews a lot. Yeah, I, I prefer to be interviewed because I know when you're interviewing someone, you have to. It's actually harder because you have to concentrate and keep thinking of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I know your pain. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I hey, believe me. I but but having read the book, I thought it was. Uh, you know, there aren't too many 600 page books that I I can't put down, but this is certainly one of them. Which is you know, it, and the book was exceptional in a lot of different levels. I mean, not only because you know you're talking about music that I you know literally grew up with, but it's so comprehensive that you feel like, you know, no stones are left unturned here. And that's remarkable to really grasp something that's so expansive. Tell me about the, the process of, of, of writing this book. What made you decide to tackle it? And, and, and what were the toughest parts about writing it? Uh, well, I always thought there's a hole. There's a, there's a massive dark goth shaped hole in music books. One of the there's academic books about goth and a lot of them are excellent. There's ones about the style of goth and they're really good as well. But I thought it needed a pop culture book, you know, the way uh, John Savage did with England's Dreaming with punk. Well, it kind of explained punk in a in an academic way, but also in a fan's kind of way as well. You actually like the music. Because the one thing I always think about academic books is they're very dry, aren't they? They don't, there's no sweat in an academic's book. Is it? They were not in the mosh pit, were they? they were, you know, it's the, you don't get the feeling they were actually in love for the music and the culture. They're brilliant <laughs> at analysing it. But what John Savage did with his book is he kind of analysed it, but he also loved the records and he couldn't help but loving the records. And I thought Goth needed that as well. And what English Dream did with punk was it kind of, people took punk a lot more seriously after English Dream because before that, it was looked upon as, you know, it's a cliched version of every youth culture, pop culture. So, so for most people, punk was just people spitting at each other. But no, there was a deeply intellectual, artful reason why punk existed. And the same with Goth as well. I mean, Goth, some of the some of the bands are producing goth in the post punk period in the UK and to a certain extent America. Some of the greatest art rock bands that have ever existed, you know, but they never get treated like that. They get treated as again, it gets reducted back to the cliche, oh, just all black clothes and white faces and everyone standing around being miserable, which is never actually in the scene at all. And it also overlooks the facts that like like a band like Bauhaus, every single track they wrote. It's completely different, but all each one a complete gem on its own. Really inventive music and really artful music, and it's not it's not said enough. It's not celebrated enough. Well, I think what's interesting about that transition from from early punk, I mean, really kind of ended as fast as it burst on the scene, is the things that came after it. You know, opened a door to real experimentation and and to real some some real musicality where the punk started to really figure out, okay, actually I can play this guitar now, or I can, I've learned to play the bass properly. And, you know, as time goes on, you know, some of these bands become much more sophisticated and how many of those early punk bands wound up touching into this goth genre, Susie and the Banshees, the damned. I mean, all, all those early punk bands at various points in their career were goth bands. Yeah, in, in a sense, yeah. It's, I mean, I don't think they ever thought of themselves as being that. I think I mean, what's interesting about Susan the Banshees was, I mean, they, they, of course they were a punk band, weren't they? But the idea, what people think is punk now is completely different from what punk was then. So, you know, like nowadays, for like a, a kid in a male in America's idea of punk would be like baggy shorts and a baseball cap <laughs> and sort of very melodic pop punk, which is fine. You know, every, every generation's got its music, whatever. But that is, is a zillion miles away from what it was initially. I mean, the Banshees, play, you know, they played their first gig as a very DIY punk band, just jamming out Lord's Prayer on the stage. But even there, you can hear what they're going to turn into. You know, and there's a, 
there's an inherent darkness to what they did, but also an artfulness as well. And I think maybe uh, the artfulness got lost a lot in the rush of punk. I mean, punk still goes on. There's still great punk bands, you know, doing that very simplified version of what punk is and knocking all the edges off but sometimes the best music can be simplified and dumbed down to almost nothing you know but but also it's great to unpack it all as well and, and what, what the Banshees did especially on the first album is they created a template and, and because because what punk was is very claustrophobic and the sound was really full and everybody played all at once and it's very fast and energetic and very exciting and what happened in the post-punk period probably because the influence of dub in a sense, especially in the UK, was it opened up the sound, you know, so it wasn't people trying to make dub records, but the idea that the bass and the drums and the guitar and the vocals are all separate from each other, there's all the space between them, kind of comes out of that sort of thinking. So, I mean, Bauhaus talk about the influence of dub in their music quite a lot, uh, but in the band sheet you can hear it, and even though they weren't trying to make dub records, that first album, the space between the instruments, really adds to the, uh, the darkness, the spectral quality of it, Plus the tribal drums and the deliberate thing of taking the cymbals away from the drums so Kenny Morris had to play the toms all the time, giving that kind of tribal kind of feel, which becomes very much a motif of uh, goth afterwards. I mean, at the time it came out, people just thought it was a great punk record, but now we look back on it, it's, it's a game-changing record. Joy Division were really influenced by uh, the Banshee's first album. I don't think that's it. I think the... Um, the Banshee's first album, the record doesn't get enough credit, you know, for, for how influential it is and what a game changer record it is. And I think, uh, I, you know, by the time they got to Juju, it was a, it was like a different band, much better musicianship. Uh, you know, McGeeock is, is uh, freaking brilliant. And then they become, by that point in their career, you can, you can see kind of the, the writing on the wall as far as, you know, how fans are responding to it. It's, these become completely iconic records. You're absolutely right. You see the shades of it. In the, in the first record, but by the time they get to Juju, it's like okay, that's a that's a fully formed, fantastic, brilliant record. Yeah, I mean Juju is a great record, but it's it's just a great record by almost a different band in a sense, but with the same kind of vision, but with obviously different members because they're different DNA. But I don't want, I don't want to take away from that first album. I think it's yeah. an incredible record. I think John McKay's guitar playing is, is absolutely amazing, and he invented that sound, that high chiming sound, which Keith Levine would do as well, but I think John John McKay might be first in that, you know, that's unspoken. And also, um, uh, you know, on the edge of U2 and people like that, it comes out of that Banshee's album. I think if you, if you actually ask the edge where he got that sound from, he would probably say somewhere between Keith Levine and John McKay. But John McKay was actually chronologically first, you know, because yeah. he was, I mean, Keith wasn't really, uh, the pill hadn't really got going at that point in time and things, you know what I mean? Not take anything away from Keith Levine. I mean, the breadth of what he did was amazing. And the guitar player. I mean, I've, I've done gigs with Keith Levine. He's he's got up on stage and played with my band. And to stand next to Keith Levine playing that sound is is mesmerising, isn't it? But I think, uh, but I think it's sad that sometimes people always forget there's other people. You know, it's uh, no guitar sounded like that before the Banshees' first album. It's, I mean, the closest you're going to get is someone like Bebop Deluxe or someone like that. It wasn't in the lexicon, was it? They, he came up with some. I love that thing where people come up with a complete original sound when, when they could barely play, you know. And that's really the amazing part about 1978 and forward is like that's where it really starts to become really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great punk bands, like you said, but there was a lot of stuff that was kind of like sloppy and not that great. But then all of a sudden, boom, it explodes. You know, it's it's funny because in this podcast, I've had the, the, the pleasure of interviewing a lot of people that weigh pretty heavily in the book. I interviewed uh, Daniel Ash, uh, Ja Wobble of Pill, Peter Hook, Rat Scabies, 
And uh, I, in fact, I just talked to uh, to Ben Christo from uh, Sisters of Mercy, and uh, it's funny to me and, and curious. And this shows up consistently in the book how vehemently they all reject the idea of goth and and about being goth. That I don't know if it's a if it's a fear of being falsely labeled or feeling there's a cartoonish aspect to it. What's your take on on why so many of the bands that are in the book and that, that we've talked about step back from goth and don't want to be necessarily associated with it? I think there's, there's two key reasons. I mean, one you just mentioned there, it, it is cartoonish, isn't it? It was, it was actually, um, yeah, because people have that car- And also I think you're trapped with it. Once a band's in a scene, it's really hard to get out. So, you know, if, if a band that was being called a goth band wanted to wear clothes that weren't black, people would complain. I mean, that's a sort of weird pressure to be under, isn't it? I mean, when you make music or create art, you should be free to do whatever art you want and never have to, like, apologise for it, you know? So if you suddenly want to swerve off and make completely different records, that's your call, isn't it? Whether anyone else wants to buy them or not, that's their call, isn't it? <laughs> the other key reason is it's a retrospective term for a scene that was already there. So for about two years, it was actually called the alternative scene. So all the clubs, and the clubs are the prime driver in the culture, they were called alternative clubs. They were playing those bands already. But they weren't golf clubs. It became golf clubs afterwards. I mean, the word golf and the word gothic was in the lexicon. It was around. I mean, in 1967, the Doors played in New York City. They played their first gig in, uh, the first gig in New York and got reviewed. And the reviewers said they, uh, they had a gothic sound. And also the other part of the review, which I really love as well, he's, he's, he's described the, uh, the Doors music as reflecting America's fascination with violence back at itself, which is such a great line. <laughs> and the Doors are, I mean, they are the quintessential first goth band, aren't they? You know, whatever, you know, whatever. That Baroque darkness, which they had, and Jim, and Jim Morrison's persona, dressed in black leather, the, the baritone voice, the, the romantic poet, kind of swashbuckling, crazy lead singer thing, is so template for goth, isn't it, what would become goth? But that's what was interesting in the UK was, they weren't as big in the UK as they were in America. So in America, they, were, they had like, you know, top five albums. But here, they, they had a couple of albums that did okay, and one and a half hit singles. They, 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 you know, the highest they got in the charts was Hello, I Love You got to number 15. You know, it wasn't, they were known, but not massive. But when Apocalypse Now came out, the film on the soundtrack, it just blew everyone's minds in 1979. So all the post-punk kids got into the doors via Apocalypse Now, then the goth scene happens about a year and a half later. You can totally see where that prime influence is coming from. Apocalypse now fed into the scene. So in a way, if you want to say that the, the two key figures that sort of uh, dominate what becomes goth is David Bowie and Jim Morrison, in a sense. There's a lot of variations of it. Other people come in different directions, but they're the two big players, in it? But so, so it's, it was more like gothic. And I think when I interviewed Steve Severin, he explained that. You know, he, he said... He didn't like the term goth because he saw it as G-O-double-F, you know, goth, as it's like, <laughs> like a bit stupid or something. But he was happy with being called gothic because gothic made him think of gothic architecture and Edgar Allan Poe and all the great poets and that. And, and, and in a sense, that's totally fine. I, you know, I think, um, I think the bands did like to think of themselves as being more than a cartoon character. The, the, I mean, of course, I mean, all, in all great pop culture, the, there's a tightrope between... And if you get it right, you, there is a cartoon element to what you do, but also there's there's a profound uh, depth to what you do as well. And if you walk the tightrope and don't fall off between those two, you've got it exactly right. You mentioned The Doors and, and, and Bowie too, and you cite this uh, throughout the book, this overwhelming influence of The Doors and Bowie and Iggy Pop and maybe even you know, Roxy Music to uh, a, a certain extent. 
Tell me about the significance of that. Bowie's influence resonates in so many different ways. And, and I, I think it's like you'd be hard-pressed to find a single artist short of the Beatles or Elvis that has had as much importance on our music and culture than David Bowie. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think he's incredibly important. I mean, I mean, the whole of the glam rock scene is important, you know, because that was a generation that was making golf. It was the kids that grew up with glam rock. You know, people my age, you know, it's people who watched Top of the Pops in the 70s in the UK, which is like the British main British pop program, which had 20 million viewers sometimes when the population was 55 million. You know, it's that's like nearly half the country watching it. So if you go on there dressed like David Bowie, you're going to have a massive effect on the psyche of the country. You know, when people talk about the Starman uh, performance on Top of the Pops, which nearly everybody does, that's not beaming out on a programme to like a few hundred kids. That's going out to the whole nation. That's your parents are watching it. It's awkward, isn't it? It's uncomfortable for the parents. And it's it's a whole different kind of sexuality. It's a whole kind of different style. It's it's a massive effect. And, and this is talking from a British perspective because obviously this didn't, that didn't appear in America. So the, the story in America is different. But this is a moment that things really did change in the UK. And then also Bowie's interviews where, where of course, if we talk about his sexuality, which, which you can't put for a lot of kids, but also what he, he would talk about his influences as well. So he would talk about William Burroughs. He would talk about the Velvet Underground. He would talk about Iggy Pop. And, and I mean, nowadays, these things are all known, but then they weren't known at all. There was no internet either. So you, you got your education, you, your uh, counterculture education out of music papers. So, so like, I mean, a lot, a lot of, you know, interviews are, you know, if you read old 70s interviews, like a lot of rock bands, they just talk about being on the road and getting drunk and guitars. But David Bowie's interview was about lots of other stuff as well. So it really was, literally, to quote David Bowie, a crash course for the Ravers. Whenever I'm reading a book about any about anybody, it's like you know, David Bowie's presence is right there. And I think what is so remarkable about him, especially especially as you're moving into like the Berlin period, of his career is he, he was seeing things change before they actually changed and he could mm. find a way to influence people's mindset and, and expose them to things they would never have been exposed to before. I mean, when you listen to, when you listen to low, you know, how many albums sounded like low after low came out? I mean, everybody was trying to mirror that record and, and, and the, the ones following that. Yeah, those Berlin records is another place. I mean, that sense of space I talk about before golf records, and some of it came from dub reggae, but some of it's got to come from those Berlin records, which in 76 and 77 were game change. I think it's quite interesting, actually, because you get the punk thing where it's going in one direction, but he's kind of going in another direction. And that kind of starkness and the emptiness and that bleakness of those records, that was really influential as well. You know, it's, it's influential on Joy Division. It's influential on the sound that Ian Curtis could hear in his head and Martin Hannett uh, was completely brilliant at creating the Joy Division records. It was kind of a Mancunian version of what they were doing in Berlin. It's like the, the Manchester record, the Manchester uh, <laughs> sound, you know, because uh, it, it does sound like what Manchester looked like then. I mean, actually, interestingly enough, the famous picture of Joy Division on that bridge, you know, the iconic shot is just taken just out there. You know, I'm just, I live right next to that bridge. So if it's daytime, I could have lifted this up and you could have a look at it in real life. And it's still there, the famous Joy Division bridge. <laughs> and if, if ever there's a photograph that kind of captured a record, well, record, what record was it made then? They, what Kevin Cummins always says, and it does sound pretentious, but it's probably true. The band didn't realize how profoundly serious they were so they saw that picture and they almost made the music to match the picture which does happen you know like 
the influence on, on music isn't always all the records. It can be architecture, it can be photographs, it can be films. And like you said, and that Bowie thing's part of that. And the idea of Berlin, the exoticness of Berlin, it seemed like an incredibly exotic place for British people growing up. And the person who gives me loads of those great quotes about Berlin, Mark Reader, who's from Manchester, he moved to Berlin when he was 18. And I remember growing up in, when I grew up 50 miles from here in a place called Blackpool. And when we heard that we'd heard about this kid, this this is how this is how boring it was in the seventies. We'd heard about this kid who'd moved from Manchester to Berlin to be part of the music scene. It's like, wow, that is, that's like moving to Mars. Then we moved to Berlin. What eighteen-year-old kid goes to live in another country in the nineteen seventies? Let alone go to live in this walled city where Bowie just made that record, you know? And he'd gone there because of that record, you know. So. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely, you know, I mean, Bowie before that, of course, had opened the doors to lots, you know, lots of possibilities. But when it was with the Berlin records, because of that darkness in there, definitely feeding through punk could open the doors for people to be able to create culture. But what people were trying to get to was the next bit and, and, and that fumbling around to get to the next bit creates post-punk. And, and goth is part of, of the, goth, the, the post-punk kind of period, very important part. I do want to ask you about some of the uh, the bands that were in there, but before I do, I think it's important to mention that the earlier part in the book, that was really interesting because, I mean, it digs into these historical components of the things that led to goth culture, not exclusively the music, but just the literature, the architecture, the politics, you know, all these things have this, this lineage that I, I thought you did a beautiful job explaining why those things were relevant in making this change in in the culture in the 1970s tell me about doing that because it could very you could very easily have skipped out on that stuff and i think because it makes so much sense i think other authors might not have have gone that far tell me about your decision to use to use that historical background yeah, well, it was actually a decision that cost me a publisher. I mean, one of the publishers <laughs> didn't want that part of the book. They wanted me to start in the post-punk period to make the whole book like that. I said, the book's too long. Can you chop all that stuff out? It's not interesting. I was going, it's really fascinating because what it's kind of saying, in, in a way, is like, I mean, it's, there's so many great pop cultures, but they're off the moment. I mean, Mars, by his name, was off the moment. It was modernism, uh, punk. I mean, you can trace punk back to a certain extent. But more than any other kind of uh, pop culture, goth was 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 a continuum, and you know there's a, there's a great case to be made for Lord Byron being a gothic rock star of the 1820s. You know, is he almost like a Nick Cave kind of figure? You know, um, of his time. You know, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, as he was called. You know, what better uh, thing could you have if you're a, if you're a rock star? You know, it's, that's one of the best T-shirt slogans ever, isn't it? And you know, and. And, and those people, they were mad, bad and dangerous, you know, probably in the way of getting cancelled now, but they were, you know, and the, the romantic poets feeding in, and not only by their lifestyles and what they were trying to do, and also embracing the darker and, and the deeper side of life and trying to explain it in an artful way, uh, their t- using the technology of their time to do it. So it would be writing poetry, writing books, designing cathedrals, making kind of really bizarre paintings, or, you know, the graveyard poets. I mean, graveyard poets actually sounds like a goth band, you know, but it's actually a genre of poetry that people write about graves and death. I mean, how perfect is that? And it, it's, on one level, it's a line that never goes away. And also, it's, it's, it's every generation has its way of dealing with its blues. So now, it's, you know, if you were 15 or 16 and you're on the melancholic side or you're fascinated about melancholia, 
you you probably go to TikTok and make a video. We're not I, I don't even mean probably. You do. That's what you do. Yeah. Or you you get you play dark sort of gothic games, or you go onto Instagram and take pictures of yourself in a forest and the music. I said it's probably probably not even in there. You know, the music's not the central part of the culture anymore, and that's fascinating as well. But it's interesting if you you read about Jim Morrison or David Bowie, they clearly have a certain uh, they were influenced by that culture, certainly the literature and the poetry that you talk about. And, you know, much of, of you know, Gothic culture is Germanic in its origin. It's an inescapable truth about if you're going to research about goth, you almost have to really, truly look at, well, where does it begin? It doesn't necessarily begin with Bela Lugosi's dead. You know, you're talking about hundreds of years be, before then. I think it was a really interesting choice on your part. I think every generation is is trying to is dealing with those themes with whatever art, culture, technology has got to hand. You know, so you know it could be um, European folk tales, and I wanted to go more into the European folk tales. I got really fascinated with them, like all the weird stories about strange eight-headed dogs that lived in woods or that dragged your children away and ate them. Or something. It's like there's so much of that, you know, like dark, misty stories from the forests and things. So. People's imaginations have always run right, and people's imaginations have always run right in very dark and shadowy kind of ways. And in in a way, the Romantic Poets was almost coding it. You know, these stories have been around forever, and I think those feelings have been around forever. And I think my generation, because music was very central to our culture, was 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 that's how you dealt with those ideas. You you made bands, you created music, uh, and wrote lyrics around those kind of themes. But those it wasn't unique to that period. It's uh, it's an eternal kind of feeling, you know. It's a, it's a fascination with the melancholy without drowning in the melancholy. That's the other thing people always get wrong about what so-called goth culture, whatever. It wasn't loads of people moping about. You know, you go to goth clubs and they're really good fun. It's you know, it's it's kind of transcending the melancholy. That's that's what it was about. I do want to mention, like I said, I want to mention a couple of things about the the bands involved in the uh, in the genre that were in the book, and I, I mentioned Bauhaus and uh, and Bela Lugosi's Dead. You know, for many people, that is kind of ground zero. I mean, it's a song they recorded in one take just weeks after forming. It's, you know, to me, it's one of the most yeah. incredible, one of the most incredible story, stories it? ever. It's like, yeah, you know, how do you, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the first time they get together, boom, they create this <laughs> devastating classic, amazing story. <laughs> and it's no compromise, is it? Your first single's eight, eight and a half minutes long. I mean, that's, you just don't do that as a band. For all you know, your publisher may have been involved in, in, in that single, telling them to cut it down. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they're on a big, they're on a major label. That's what would have happened. Yeah, the major label would say, "Do a radio mix, make it three minutes long." You know, like what, what, what's a radio station got to do with telling how long your song should be? I never understood that. Obviously, Bauhaus didn't understand that either, and made it eight minutes long. Uh, thank God for John Peel because John Peel operated beyond the rules. You know, so John Peel played it endlessly. You know, he's, I mean, I mean, over here, I mean, it's hard to explain to people in other countries, but what an what, what amazing portal that was. Mainstream radio, national radio. We had a DJ for two hours a night. We'll play the most random out there music. It was, that was massively influential. You know, you could, it, it created careers about And it also, for a listener, it really expanded what you could hit, listen to. Nobody's been like that since then. You know, it's, who else to play that three times in a week? It's, it, to this day, you don't hear it in the radio. <laughs> no, you don't. You know, there's a there's a good deal of uh, attention paid to to Joy Division, which I think a lot of people would not necessarily consider to be a goth band. But you know, but some of the feel and you know the the darkness of what you know Ian Curtis would sing about 
the importance of that band can't be, I, I don't think, understated. You know, those two records, you know, Unknown Pleasures and Closer, are, are you know just remarkable sonic experiences. You know, here we are, twenty twenty three. They sound as as fresh and as relevant as they ever have. And to think about the band hearing, you know, hearing their work for the very first time and say, "Yeah, now we don't like the way that sounds." Uh, you know, it's 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 yeah. remarkable to me because you know they still hold up so beautifully. They still sound like the future, don't they? Which is amazing. I mean, how many? It's so rare you don't record. You can make records that don't date, but to make a record that you still think, how do you catch up with that? You know, it's. I mean, to this day, even in uh, what we now have to term as pre-war Russia. I'll be going there to uh, music events, you know, like uh, like festivals or whatever. And the amount of teenagers I met in Russia whose Joy Division were their favourite bands, who had no idea that Joy Division were a cult band. They thought Joy Division were like U2 and played in stadiums. You know, I so said the biggest crowd they ever played to was 400 people. They just, I mean, I, when, I, when they played uh, Blackpool, where I'm from, there's about 80 people there. It's like they just weren't that big, you know. It's, it's it, the people liked them, of course, you know, made, you know, it's like, it's like the Velvet Underground thing, isn't it? Like, it's 150 people liked and they all formed a band. The Geordie Vision was smaller than that, you know, but the, the, the impact has probably been uh, now in terms of all these years, it's probably been bigger. So, yeah, I mean, they weren't a goth band per se, what's understood as being a goth band per se. But if you think of, in terms of punk, like the Stooges are a punk band who aren't a punk band. So it's the same kind of thing, and it? it wasn't formed, you know. So with the, the Stooges' nihilism and the music they play and the sound they made that wall of sound guitar is a massive influence on punk. It doesn't make the Stooges a punk band. The same majority of vision, you know, it's a big influence on goth. But they weren't dressed as goth or anything. But yeah. they, all the hallmarks are in place. It's kind of the stepping stone to the doors to the more goth bands later. You know, it's the baritone vocal, the darkness. But it's also sieved through a few other things as well. There's a dollop of Bowie in there, Kraftwerk's in there, you know, Krautrock's in there, all those kind of things. And it's and also, they're one of the earliest bands to be described as gothic. I mean, Martin Hannett described them as a gothic band you could dance to. So it's, it was the third mention of gothic when describing uh, modern rock music. The second was the Banshees. I was so happy when I saw, you know, the table of contents and, and heard that you were going to wind up covering one of my favorite bands. And that was, uh, was Killing Joke. It's a band that this doesn't necessarily get as much attention here in the States as they do in the UK or in other places around the world. But, you know, to me, it's just like the most intense, you know, overwhelming band in the world. I was so happy you covered them because I think that's a band that that uh, I just don't think they've gotten you know what they deserve. Yeah, completely. I mean, the bigger here, they're playing the Arbor Hall next week, and that's five thousand people. So they're starting to get the recognition they they deserve. They actually had chart records here of a sort, you know. Yeah. But um, I mean, a lot, a lot of people say you know this, that that's not a goth band. It's not a goth band, and I know people argue about the Sender's Sleep. It's my book, so I decide what goes in. But also, um, I decided the, the actual structure of a book is like a golf club. So it starts with going to a golf club in Britain, the late seventies, early eighties, or as it was called, their old church club. And I describe what everyone wears and what the club smells like, looks like, and all that. And then I do the deep dive in the history. But each chapter of each band I write about is what you would hear in that club. So I, I figured that the people who would go to these clubs and the people playing the records are the are the arbiters of taste. You know, they're the ones who get to decide what these bands are. Not forty years later, when people sort of sort of say, "Well, that that doesn't fit." Well, you know, you had to be there at the time. Killing, you'd always hear "Killing Joke" in alternative stroke golf clubs. You know, you'd hear them. You'd always hear the cramps in these clubs, and and you know, the cramps weren't formed as a golf band. I know that. You know, don't tell me that. I know that already. <laughs> but you go to a golf club in England in in the in the eighties, you'd hear them five times a night, and everyone danced to them. 
So Killing Joke were like that as well, you know, and, and they had that darkness, that all-pervading darkness, which is part of the attraction. But also they had that thing, which is a really important part of this story. They had the black music influence. So not only was it black in, level, in a level of darkness, it was actually black in a level of a musical influence. So Killing Joke, you can hear disco and funk and dub all in Killing Joke sounds. And Goth was about the dance floor. You had to be able to dance to this music. So it wasn't like thrashing about like punk or getting in the pit. And it wasn't called a mosh pit then. You know, it's pogoing and going going crazy on speed. Goth was more uh, sinuous. You know, it's about the groove. If you've got it, and the club, the about live music element is really important, but the clubs are really important as well, driving the culture. And the clubs are about the dance floor. If you can't dance to it, you're not going to get, you're not going to be played, are you? So, so a lot of those bands, Bauhaus have it as well. They have a groove. They have a, an understanding of black music. You know, primitive, but understanding. What's interesting, though, is how goth relates to, to Killing Joke is not necessarily within the music, but certainly within, you know, the creation of that band, you know, who Jazz Coleman is, you know, their leanings towards the occult and magic and ritual. It's a really important part of who Ooh. they are. Jazz Coleman is a guy I would I would love to interview, and every time I've I've asked... <laughs> you know, to, to interview him, the answer has sometimes been, are you, are you <laughs> sure you want to take that on? But he, I mean, I, I would really love to, I mean, I think he would just be a, a, a it would be fascinating to talk to him because of I know, it, some of those things. It can be incredibly charming. You know, it's, it's hard work to be that intense and difficult for your whole of your life, you know? <laughs> so I mean, I've, at times I met him and interviewed him. He's been, he's been great company, you know, but I, I know he can be, a lot of these people can be difficult, you know, it's, yeah. That's okay. It's their prerogative, isn't it? But I mean, if you speak to youth, I mean, youth is like super nice, you know. I mean, it's they are quite a weird band, aren't they? If you think about it, because all their extracurricular careers are really successful. So, youth is one of the world's top pop producers, isn't it? I mean, how did yeah. that happen? He's when he left Killing Joke, he's the ultimate rock and roll acid casualty. And a year later, he's or a few years later, he's producing Crowded House, 17 million record sales, you know, or. Or, or the Verve album, which which sold 12 million. You know, it's that, that's youth, you know. Yeah. Or Paul McCartney, for that uh, matter, too. Yeah. yeah or, or Pink Floyd. You know? Yeah. And he's, yeah, he's done three albums of McCartney, and it's quite amazing. He's, he's quite amazed when you ask him. He goes, I can't believe that actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then Charles Coleman's one of the world's top um, conductors, isn't he? And when uh, Led Zeppelin or Rolling Stones do their classical albums, when they put, play their music, Get the music rearranged for orchestras. He's the go-to guy to do it, and he's written it. Didn't he write the national anthem for the Czech Republic? I believe he did. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think he did, didn't he? So he's. I mean, then, then you look at his background, and that's where he trained. He trained as a classical musician, and his brother is one of the world's top uh, astronomers as well, isn't he? So, you know, he's, he's they come from a super intellectual background. You know, those people are so smart they actually get quite dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what it, that's what it seems like. It seems like that if you're not paying attention or careful, you get really boxed into a corner, and that's when the problems start. Yeah. But I was so happy to to read that chapter because I, I can't read enough or own enough Killing Joke in my life. There's a couple other uh, other bands that I'm, I'm I'm glad you you gave them coverage. Sisters of Mercy, I think, make a whole lot of sense. Andrew Eldritch may be one of the most elusive figures in maybe all of music. This is a guy who has been touring constantly for the last thirty years, but hasn't released a record since that third one in 1990 but i remember being in college radio when those uh, when the first two records came out i think sisters of mercy really introduced gothic culture to the united states in maybe a way that joy division or maybe even the cure didn't quite do it was like 
the Sisters of Mercy were a total game changer for goth in the U.S. Yeah, in 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 a way, he actually detests, isn't it? But that's kind of funny as well, isn't it? So, so <laughs> <laughs> every interview is at great pains to paint that he's. I mean, of course, he, they didn't form the band as a goth band. Again, you know, this band was formed. There's no such thing as goth. They they formed as a post punk band. He sees his lineage being closer to Joy Vision or Echo and the Bunny Men or or uh, Comsa Angels. You know, he. He likes to call, I mean, I did speak about this, and he, he likes to think of it as being the M62 sound. And the M62 is, the north of England, is our version of Route 66. It's the motorway that joins all the main cities together. And I love that term. I, I, I actually, I wish it was called the M62 sound because it does make sense because, you know, in a way, the Sister Mercy are, aren't that far away geographically, um, musically, from Mecca and the Bunnymen. You know, it was, there's a, there's a dark shadow to the sound, but there's also a, um, an artfulness to it and their individuality. I mean, Eldridge, Eldridge is not part of a scene, but his fans are. You know, that's what I mean. The book, I, there's no, I don't put them in the book saying they're a goth band. I'm not trying to nail them into anything, but their fans, I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of the fans. The fans see them as a goth band, you know, and that's yeah. what the fans think. And I do explain in the chapter that Eldridge is not a goth, you know, he's, it's, and also, I like, there's things about the system people overlook. I mean, how brilliant these lyrics are, you know. The minimalism, the way the way he he could get a lot of complex meaning into about six words. I mean, it's the, and some of the greatest lyrics, like "Floor Show," which is a very early sister song, is a brilliant description of of people dancing in a club, which just happens to be the Phono Club in Leeds, which just happens to be the world's first golf club, which defined the culture, you know, which he DJed out, and his then girlfriend Claire Shearsby DJed it as well, DJed out as well, and she was a driver, you know, she's the one who's playing. Suicide and the Stooges and all them records, which now, of course, you'd hear everywhere, but you, you'd be rare to hear them in a club at the time. And 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 that and Leeds that informed the culture, you know. So Leeds, whereas every other city ran away from rock music in the UK in the late seventies, early eighties after punk, after Year Zero, they embraced rock music in Leeds, but through a filter of the, the nihilism and the minimalism of the Stooges, and also uh, Suicide and that Suicide. That, that sort of minimalistic technology, which is like amazing, and that spooky Elvis from Hell vocal thing, <laughs> and that mad little drum machine, you know, it's it's all there. You know, Suicide was the band. I mean, you go, you, you go and see Suicide, though, in the UK for years, and there'd be about 30 people at the gigs. And fortunately, before he died, they became really cool band to like, and they could play to thousands of people, you know. But then, to this day... That first Suicide album is still one of the greatest records ever made. I think when you hear Frankie's Teardrop for the first time, it's like the most frightening onslaught of sound there is ever. <laughs> yeah. That's before he even screams. Yeah. And when right. he screams, like, whoa, God, Jesus. <laughs> but the bit before, where it's just shit, like the track shivers, that the sound of it. Yeah. It's like a, it's shivering as a piece of music. It, it just, it sonically describes fear and claustrophobia and a, an amazing way, but when they did their first tour in the UK, supporting the Clash, they, they got bottled off every night, and he ended up in hospital because he got hit in the face by a full old-fashioned uh, British uh, pint glass, which they don't make anymore. Those dimple glasses, which weigh a ton, and he smacked him in the face, and he got knocked out. You know, and it's like, you know, you'd think uh, in punk every really broad behind it, but suicide just too much for people. You know. You know, we, we, we talked earlier about how punk fractioned off into different, you know, different areas, into a million different types of of uh, subgenres. But one of the things that you, you mentioned in the book, which I think is so important and maybe overlooked, is the, the, the parallels between goth 
and industrial music. And whether you're talking about the Germanic, you know, influences of that music or, you know, Leibach from Slovenia, there's something very important about those bands going back to uh, to craft work and, and, and beyond. It's a really interesting part of the book, but that music is not for everybody. You really have to be in, a, in the right mindset to, uh, to really in, embrace it. And some of it's meant almost meant not to, to really embrace it. Tell me, tell me about, you know, industrial and especially more the more German based bands. And I'm saying, well, I'm know, saying that because I, I cannot for the life of me <laughs> pronounce <laughs> Einster's then, <laughs> I, I, I've tried a million times, and I keep fucking that one up. Actually, for a German word, it's fairly easy to pronounce, because you pronounce it as you read it. So it's <laughs> Einsterzende, which is exactly how it's written, Neubarten. That's my ignorant American bleeding out for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, the, the actual way it's written looks terrifying, because you think, oh God, how do you say that? But if you actually, if you say it as you read it, it's actually how you say it. So it's, it's not got a weird pronunciation. It's right. not like unschwiggle or something. <laughs> it actually is as you, as you read it. And it means collapsing new buildings. So the second part, part of it, Neu Barton, is new building. So it sounds quite similar. Um, but I forget, you can go back further than that. You know, you go back to the early industrial, you know, or the proto-industrial. You know, I was fascinated by that Cabaret Voltaire in 1974, sat on an attic, coming up with these completely weird sounds with, by cutting up cassettes and... You know, how, how did they get to that point? I mean, they're Roxy Music fans and they, they kind of got the Brian Eno thing where he's playing uh, a keyboard player who can't play keyboards, but actually does play them very, very well with, of Eno. And they kind of, they, without even reading the interviews, they kind of got that's what was going on and tried to make their own version of it and created this completely different soundscape. And then at the same time, over a, a couple of years earlier in the whole, you got uh, Genesis P. Orange putting together the project before Throbbing Gristle, which is like an art project, you know, just go down the streets, dress up with mad clothes, scaring people, <laughs> and then go down to London, and they do that uh, with, with, with the thing was called Coombe, C-O-U-M, and they do that event at, in, in 1976 at the ICA, which is like, you know, tampons nailed on the wall, pro, uh, it's got uh, pornography in it, and it's, it's completely offensive. It's basically that thing, which is quite a big deal at the time, of reflecting the ugliness of society back at itself. You know, that way people are always outraged by things are actually quite commonplace, you know, and it's and life is ugly and people pretend it isn't. So someone actually tells the truth, it's pretty terrifying. That was the whole point of that stuff in the early times. But that was the first gig they also played as Throbbing Gristle at their art installation. And they make sort of this anti-music, which which becomes really influential, you know. So and I think it's quite an interesting line that you get from industrial music of that type then. Industrial music now, which is like you know, um, you know, you get industrial rock like Ramstein, Nine Inch Nails, whatever, which weirdly does have that influence. It does start at that point, but it's got heavy metal mixed into it as well. It's it's quite weird, or, or quite a lot of goth as well mixed into it. So goth and industrial are kind of parallel. I mean, a lot of people I, I used to know on the goth scene would like industrial music as well, but I suppose the simplest way of trying to explain it is. They're both dealing the same kind of feelings in the subject matter, but goth tends to do it more in a traditional rock kind of way, verses and choruses. And there's a drummer, look, there's a bass player, a guitar player. Yeah. Whereas industrial would do it in non-traditional kind of ways. It would do it with noise and sound, or or just getting keyboards and making make the weirdest fucked up sound possible. You know, <laughs> and it got weirder and more fucked up as it went along, didn't it? And more and more challenging to a point it gets so ugly. 
you start to think, should I actually be writing about this person? I'm not very sure. <laughs> you know, I, I remember the 80s when uh, Al Jorgensen you know, produced that first record by Ministry. And, you know, the one that he has disavowed for forever. But, you know, at the time, it was just like a great synth pop record. But then all of a sudden... Yeah, it's a good record. It's, it's actually yeah. a very solid record. But then all of a sudden, jump forward five years, and, and it's like it. You know, everybody that loved that first record, he scared the living shit out of. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and But he's had this amazingly brilliant career. And, and you know, he's more substantially influential today than than ever before so you know industrial really does have its place and i think it's oh. an important part of of the culture yeah i mean what became industrial you know the idea that the more rock-based version industrial wax tracks i went to wax tracks in 988 uh, i think 88 89 to a piece for a british newspaper called sounds so i interviewed yorkson then and paul baker barker in it and then uh, went to the record shop interviewed the guys around the shop did did all the other bands like um uh, Revolt Cox, of course, Phil Kilcall, who I always really like them. They're kind of industrial disco, camp, campy industrial disco, but very good at it as well. I've interviewed them quite a lot, actually. And, uh, there's a whole scene going on there, and it was different because it, it was like it was like heavy metal industrial. It was different from the industrial I know before. And at first, I thought, this is weird. How, how come they describe this as industrial? Because this doesn't sound like industrial. But I remember a lot of those people in that scene have come out of that, you know, like. The people who were in uh, Volton Cox, you know, which is the same people's ministry a lot of time, yep. but some of the other guys in that project and actually were fans of, of Psychic TV and Throbby Gristle as kids, you know, and they'd, they'd kind of gone down that more rock route. I think there's always that thing in there, especially if you're a bloke, you always get dragged back into rock music. You have to try, you have to be very disciplined not to get dragged, sink back into the rock <laughs> lagoon, don't you? <laughs> You know, to stay in the art one because the art stuff, it's hard to do art because no, no one wants to listen to it, do they? <laughs> so, so, but I think the quintessential band in all that scene is Nine Inch Nails. I think, yeah. I mean, he took it up to another level. I think he's insanely talented. And the, the sound of his records, the production of his records, he, he's almost like the Bowie of the scene. He had a vision, didn't he? And he also, he did that Bowie thing where he did interviews, he big people up and, you know, when Clint Mansell was on his arse at the Pottery itself, it was, it was Trent Rouse that stepped in and gave, you know, helped him get that big career in Hollywood. Right, those mind-blowing soundtracks that Clint does these days. And, you know, he's he's always around helping other artists' careers out and opening the doors to people. So it's, it's, it's not, it's quite selfless, you know, and also, and now he's almost, he's kind of going away from the more heavy industrial things, that more soundtracky version, reverting almost, Sort of slowly back to the original industrial, and it's quite weird because a lot, a lot, a lot of the noise industrial guys who did in the first place now make pastoral English folk music, don't they? Because <laughs> they actually worked out there. You don't have to make noise to be dark and heavy. Yeah, it can actually, you know, if you listen to a current '93 record now, they're quite, they're quite beautiful records, but they're also quite unsettling, and you can't work out how or why. There's a, there's a mystique and a mystery to it as well. And mystique and mystery are also. Uh, very gothic, very very sort of goth signifiers. I started off by saying that it, the the thing that I enjoyed about the book is that you left no stone unturned. And it, you know, at some point, I'm thinking I'm reading the book and I'm going, okay, but he hasn't mentioned uh, this band or that band, and sure as shit, you did. And, yeah. and, and then you like, <laughs> they come. <laughs> there they come. Like uh, I, I'm thinking like the Cocteau Twins, and you know, especially the Chameleons, which I think is like maybe one of the most unsung bands of all time. What a great band this was and and you know as a gothic i or i i don't i don't know but it is it is a band that i've always wondered you know why was that not the biggest 
goddamn band in the world. I mean, we actually just toured with the Chameleons in December around, yeah. <clears throat> around the UK, and they, they, they never sounded better. You know, like they're touring America um, this this year, aren't they? Doing that tour with the Mission and Fear and Hate. That's a great lineup. So great lineup. You definitely want to get you want to get onto that, and you want to interview Mark actually, Mark Burgess. He lives in America now, so um, uh, so I think he lives in Austin. So. Uh, I think they had that atmosphere. They had that melancholic atmosphere to them. They were huge in Manchester. You know? that after after Joyvision, they were like the next biggest bands. But they're never they're never part of the music business. They're always on the outside. And then, and also their manager died, didn't they? So they were always one of those bands. As soon as they got close to uh, victory, defeat, they always grabbed defeat from the jaws of victory, as we as we say in England. You know, so just when it's going right, something would go wrong. So, but but. Fine, but now they're they're really on a, on a curve. They sound brilliant at the moment, so maybe they will get their victory. That you know that they've been due for like forty years and things. I mean, they're not. Of course, of course, they're not um, gothic per se. But again, in all those bands you would hear in golf clubs in, in shreds, you'd always hear it in the golf club. You know, it's, it was good because it has that atmosphere to it. I think I think they saw themselves as being closer to the Bunny Men and Teardrop Explodes, M sixty two bands. You know, the same kind of idea. It was it was not it was. Northern bands always had that kind of melancholic element to their music, but they always had a it, was a, it was some weird balance between euphoria and melancholy. That's very Northern. You talk about your great performances. I know Susie is back uh, to performing. She's making a comeback. She's expanded dates on her tour. She hasn't been live in a decade anywhere. Tell me about, uh, about your thoughts about her making a, a comeback. It's incredibly timely. I think it's, but it's instinctive. I don't, I don't think she was sat there in the house in France going, I must wait for the right time to come back. I think some people just know and they follow their instincts and they just come back when they feel like it and the world's go, whoa. I mean, post-Wednesday, you couldn't get a better time to come back. There's a whole new generation just checking, you know, just discovering you. You're right right in front of you, you know, and it's uh, been away long enough to make to, to create that sense of mystery. You know, you that, that's really important. Like I said a minute ago, and the fact you can't get an interview with her, it's absolutely impossible. No one get an interview with her. No. Nobody even knows what she looks like. That's the thing. <laughs> what does she look like now? No one's seen a picture of her for about 10 years. So yeah. all the pictures that are on the posters are pictures from years ago. So the minute she walks on stage, people are going to go, well, what's she look like now? You know, so it's <laughs> that kind of thing. It's, it's really difficult in the internet age to have any sense of mystery because everybody puts everything up. Oh, look at me. What, you know, um, Look at me walking down the street, that kind of thing, which is kind of fine. Everybody documents everything. But if you're talking in terms of great music, there's always, you kind of knew everything about an artist, but you actually knew nothing about them. Which I always think the best music autobiographies is when you read them. I'd say the best music autobiographical film, the Sparks film, have you seen it? Oh, I did. The film I about Sparks. It. Oh, it's amazing because you watch the whole that two hours long. And you love them, don't you? Because they're so lovable. But you get to the end of it, and, and how much did you find out about them? You don't know anything about them. No, at you, all. Do, you don't. And 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 you know, I I interviewed Russell. You know even less than when you started. I interviewed Russell Mail right before that film came out, and you know, I talked to him for about forty minutes. I felt like I could talk to this guy all day, but I don't know anything about him. <laughs> even oh, I know, I know. even after talking to him for forty-five minutes, but seeing Sparks live well, is, ever- is an absolute joy. Oh, brilliant. I mean, if, if you interview Ron, you, you know, even less because he's he's like a chess player, you know, he's, he's funny. And, and, and they're, they're the most charming people ever. You know, yeah. super charming. I, I, it's just really when you think, actually, is there, is there nothing there? Or are they just absolutely brilliant at hiding everything and just not giving anything away? And their songs are the same, aren't they? Like that new single is like one of the best things I've ever done. Like, Did- how the hell do you bring out 
a song that great after 50 years. Did, did you see the video with Kate Blanchett dancing to it? Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? It's really funny and it's really unsettling at the same time. It's it kind of makes you laugh, and it's but it's got a sort of weird darkness. To it. I mean, there's plenty of people in goth love Sparks. You know, they're de- they're definitely part of the um, you know of 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 the of the the DNA. You know, just I mean that, that thing. You know, like when when you were fourteen, and I I know they've done three odds. We didn't know they've done. They thought new bands when this town ain't big enough for both of us comes out, and they're on top of the pops, and everybody. I mean, I mean, Russ looked brilliant. You know, he was like some kind of. Sort of, sort of androgynous version of Jim Morrison. Yeah, but 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 Ron Mayer was just like mind blowing. You think <laughs> I know it's a misquote, but that I, that story about John Lennon ringing up Ringo Starr and going, "Have you seen this band on top of the pops?" It's like Mark Boland with with Arnold Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> but they're geniuses, though. I mean, Ron Mayer, I think, is like one of the most unsung geniuses of all time. He d- it was doing a video oh, now. He was doing a video series where he's just reading his lyrics and you realize how just profoundly brilliant and weird and hilarious the guy is. Just unbelievable. They're really autobiographical, even though you don't realize it first. They, they sound like, like, like this town's like a list of animals, isn't it? But it's actually about something completely different, you know. Yeah, but but, but, but they're in the UK now, they're really embraced. You know, they're loved here. And uh, America never really got sparks, did it? No, other than, you know, there's been, you know, a couple tracks, you know, here and there over the last 50 years that people may have heard, but there's not an album of theirs that I don't own. And it's like one of the most important parts of my collection. I love my Sparks collection. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It is. What we say over here is is they're the greatest British band of all time from America. (laughs) 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 Because there's nothing American about them at all. No. You know, it's like. Everything about them is is uh, is British art rock, which is they totally love. You know, yeah. they they were totally influenced by British bands. You know, Kinks and the Who's when they were kids, they're two bands, and they just got more and more into the arty weird shit. And when they came over here, they fitted <laughs> perfectly. You know, they were, they were like right in the middle of glam. Sparks turned up, and they just seemed exactly right. And they and they again they factionalized into a bunch of different genres themselves, and and have been brilliant at every single thing they've tried to do. Yeah, from Burley. Cabaret to Disco, Georgia Moroder. Yep. Those, those tracks are great. You know, what they do now really well is they, they sort of settle on their classic sounds. So it's like that 1974 propaganda sound. And that's what they do now. We need like an updated version. Obviously, the new single could actually be off those two or three, 70, you know, the 74, 75 albums. That's, that, that's kind of their sound moment. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I really like that sound. Like the kind of weird little twisted two and a half minute pop songs you know the the, the problem with writing a 600 page book is i've you know i've got a million more questions i'd like to ask you at some point but you know, i've already had you for an hour and i feel i feel bad like i've taken the time away from you this has been a great discussion and and a real good conversation i, I really did enjoy the book it uh it, it's it's a brick but it, it's a it's a wonderful read so i i appreciate you giving me some time today say john no i appreciate you doing the interview and um, i think Anybody listening to this who wants, who wants to get the book, uh, the one thing I think they should do is listen to the bands as they read about them. So if you read about, you know, some of the bands, you might not know the others, just put them on the backgrounds, get your Spotify out and have a listen, and it'll turn you on to those. Because so, I think the highest compliment as a writer, I'll probably use as a broadcaster as well, is if you turn, as I'm always a music fan, is when you turn people onto sort of another piece of music, and then the door opens and, you know, Maybe somebody will go away from this uh, discussion here and become a, like a huge fan of Sparks. And then we've won. That, that'd be it. The, the hour would have been worth it. <laughs>
but it took you 53 minutes to get to that point. It's totally worth it. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. I hope it does really well for you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Baxi. Yeah, brilliant. Good okay, see- thank you. Good to see you, John. Thank yeah. you so much. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. The name of John Robb's new book is The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth, and it's being released everywhere later this month, including on his amazing website, Louder Than War. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share it, like it, love it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.